0: So you know, as I continue on in the series of, for apologetics, um, there have been several like subsections to it, and uh, this particular subsection has to do with why people don't come to faith. That are that's really independent of anybody evangelizing them or whatever. Um, that there are certain things at play in other ways that, no matter what we do, uh, they 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 may not be able they may not be able to come to faith regardless of what any believer does or what any Christian does and so I was struck you know as I was preparing um, uh, for today's service and uh, in this um, um, I think it was a uh, the gospel yeah it was the gospel reading that uh, this last these last two verses that uh, Kevin read. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, there's almost a cognitive, cognitive dissonance to say, <laughs> the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You know, like after you read something like that. But the point is, and I, and I think to a certain degree the larger picture of this is, we are responsible for those wicked. That we are responsible for speaking to them before that ever happens. That some of those people maybe need never end up in this blazing furnace. If More of us were more diligent about how we lived our lives in Christ. That um, we have to take that responsibility seriously. Um, And all we can do is what we can do. Again, our job is to be faithful. It's God's job to be to to be successful. But we have that responsibility. I ran across this post on Facebook that I thought I would share with you because it has so much to do with what I'll be sharing with you, kind of in this final capstone sermon on this subsection about why people, what are the biblical reasons why people don't believe. And so let me read this to you. <clears throat> this is a woman who posted this, and she said, I used to practice witchcraft, I did spells read oracle cards, did energy work, and used crystals as a means of healing, protecting, and manifesting. I was a, I think it says, recce master and yoga teacher. I believed in astrology, manifested under a new moon, and did shadow work under the full moon. I worshiped nature and worked with goddesses. I believed I was a star seed. I found my spiritual guides and let them lead the course of my life. I would talk to spirit, source, universe, and believe that I was speaking to my higher self. I believe that I created my own reality and that I was my own God in control of my own life. So this person's pretty invested in wackiness. I was also trapped in a continuous cycle of healing and up-leveling constantly needing the next healing session in various forms. So here she begins to talk about how this thing wasn't working so well for her. Feeling good after each healing session and chasing that feel good high when it would wear off. I believe that my next crisis was just leveling me up and raising my vibration and cracking some secret code to the harmony of the collective planet. While I believed all of this, I was suffering and in a deep pit of depression. I longed to feel loved, heard, and understood. My soul lacked a sense of belonging. My body was in a constant state of fight or flight. There were lots of days I had wished I weren't alive. I was being tormented, I'm sure that is true. Experiencing regular sleep paralysis, I thought I could burn a little sage, say a little chant, and put crystals in every corner of my room to stop it. I was wrong about all of it. What I was actually doing was laying down a welcome mat for darkness, deception, and all that comes with it. I felt so allergic to the G word, God, I almost unfriended a New Age colleague who had recently come to Christ because she couldn't stop talking about Jesus. Who knew, right? Talking about Jesus might impact people, huh? I was irritated by it, angry, repelled. I thought, what happened to her? Has she gone mad? But in God's grace, he met me in my stubbornness in my sin, in my depression. There was a moment in my resistance where I reluctantly watched a movie about Jesus to appease my boyfriend at the time. <clears throat> I watched and sobbed hysterically. I was overcome by an intense feeling of love, something I had never, never ever felt before, the kind of love that I was desperately chasing in all the wrong ways. That's when I knew God was after my heart. I tried to deny it and ignore it, but I wanted to feel that feeling again. So I chased after Jesus. I started reading the Bible. I had never really done that before, and God's character was revealed to me. I prayed a lot. I had resistance to attending church, but eventually I bounced around to a few churches until I found a biblically sound church. I mean, it's just so stunning to me that you would have to search for a biblically sound church. Uh, uh, right? It's just, <laughs> and this is how I started a relationship with God. I never knew what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus, and now that I know, I'll never let Him go. The chains of my depression have been broken. After praying in the name of Jesus, I have never experienced another sleep paralysis episode again. I find joy in the Lord. I have been made free by his word, felt the power of his spirit, felt the love of the Father, and I am changed forever. New Agers often think there are multiple ways to God, that you just have to have your truth or that you can access Christ's consciousness. None of that is true. The truth is, there are not multiple ways to God. There is one. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. John 14, 6. I know lots of you will think the same about me, that I thought about my new age colleague. She has gone totally mad. I'm okay with that. There's nothing that compares to the peace, hope, and love that comes from knowing Jesus. My prayer is that maybe this plants a seed in your heart and that if you feel convicted by my words, you will be open to the idea that God is chasing after you, too. I'm going to share two biblical texts with you that have a lot to do with seed and a lot to do with God chasing after us. And I want you to see that according to the text that I'll be sharing with you, that those texts work, them, work themselves out in every way in this person's life. And so um, it, it goes to the veracity and the power of the truth of scripture and the work of Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as I begin then, I just want to remind all of us again where we've been so far, very quickly. There are people who don't believe because they think the things of God are folly. There are people who don't believe because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. There are people who do not believe because their minds are set on the flesh and the pleasures that come from the flesh. And there are people who do not believe because they have not yet been convicted by the Holy Spirit. And there are people who do not believe because they have not been drawn by the Father. So when I read this text to you, do you remember how this woman could not sleep? She had these episodes of sleeplessness. And, uh, and, and hopelessness and just a restlessness in her soul, maybe, just maybe, that was God the Father pointing out to her inwardly that the things that she was pursuing don't work, that they can't give to her what she thought they would. Sometimes, in the midst of all of that malaise, it's really God pointing out the inconsistency of what the world has to say really works. And so God was chasing after her. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 6. And there's this key text, and I'm going to explore the the context of it a little bit more in in a few moments. But there is this amazing text where Jesus is having this conversation with uh, a group of people right after he, um, <clears throat> the event of the bread and the fish, where he fed the 5,000. And it's right during this discourse where he says, I am the bread of life, one of the first of the seven great I am statements. So in verse 44, um, he says, after he says, I am the bread of life, he says, And he's having this discussion with people who who don't believe him. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So then after he says this, there's more discussion. And he continues to reach out to these people who will not believe in him. And even after that, he's having this discussion with the disciples who are having a hard time believing what Jesus is saying about himself. And so further on in verse 65 of this same chapter, he concludes what he says to his disciples by saying this, And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So God the Father is at work in the world. It's not just the Holy Spirit. It's not just Jesus. But Jesus is saying clearly here that it's God the Father who draws the unbeliever to, the, um, uh, to Christ. That he is at work beforehand before a person ever comes to Christ. And so so this woman that I, was, that I read to you about her testimony, she very clearly was being pushed in some ways, in some invisible ways that she did not understand towards Jesus, God the Father. So uh, it's, it's interesting, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself. That word draws. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll, I'll cite that a little bit later on. That word draws can also mean drags, pulls you toward. So sometimes God the Father draws us by dragging us, pulling us towards Jesus. And, uh, and probably in some cases, the process of dragging and pulling Isn't all that pleasant? Because when you're being dragged to something, there's something behind you that's holding on to you, whether it's gravity or something else. You're in between two things, and he is pulling you. He is dragging you to Christ himself. So in this discourse, I am the bread of life, which we find in John 35 through 51, Jesus is in the city of Capernaum, and I don't know if you remember this, but Capernaum is in Galilee, and Capernaum was the headquarters central of Jesus' ministry. It's where almost all of his really important ministry took place. Um, His miracles, um, uh, so much of his teaching all took place in and around the city of Capernaum. And so this, di- this, so this statement, I am the bread of, of life, was the first of, his, of the seven great I am statements, which, I don't know, let's, let's quiz you. Do you remember what all the, the, the uh, I am statements are? Do you remember? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Those are the seven great I am statements. I am the bread of life begins those seven great I am statements. So then we read in verse 35 Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. So this is the proclamation that Jesus is making about himself. He's making this physical proclamation. He is voicing to them what he is. Right? I am the bread of life. And he's basically saying a whole bunch by saying, I am the bread of life. And then he goes on to say things like where he came down from heaven. And we'll get to that in a moment. But this is the proclamation. He's asking them to believe in him through this proclamation. To trust in him in the same way that they would trust in bread for their physical sustenance. Verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So he's saying here, uh, you know, in verse 37, all those that the Father gives me. So we have this hint again where the Father is bringing people to Christ. And who comes to me, I will never drive away. He's making this proclamation again, this promise in this proclamation. You too can have this, he's saying to these people who refuse to believe him. He's doing an apologetic. He's defending what he is before these people. Verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those He has given me, but raise them up on the last day. And so there's this promise that when the Father gives us to the Son to believe, that we will be raised up on the last day. We will be found in eternity, we will be restored, made complete. Verse 40, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on that last day. He says it again and he claims to be the son of God. Which instead of the Jews believing him, it offends them. So, we read then uh, in verse 41, this is how the Jews respond. And this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So they were, they were stymied. They, they did not know or were unaware or were in denial about the fact that remember, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that the Messiah that was to come was to, was to come in a way that Jesus came. And that he would come being fully God and fully man. All they could see was the fully man. They could not see, did not want to see the fully God. So their argument against him was only based on what they could see physically. And this, in many respects, is what people do today. When they reject Jesus, they reject him based on the fact that all they can see, all they want to see, was was that he was a physical man. They don't want to see, they refuse to see, to accept his claim about being fully God as well. So in this way, the critique against Christ is very similar about what was happening then and what is happening today. It's the same kind of critique. He was just a man, a good teacher, but just a man. He wasn't God. There is no God. There is no metaphysical world. And that's all the Jews could see at that point in time. Verse 42, and this is how they rationalize it. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? It was a stumbling block. In fact, Jesus said that to him, that he would be a stumbling block to people in this way. They would trip over the stumbling block because they just could not come to terms with the fact that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. So the Jews' anger centered on two things. It was that he was the bread of life who came down from heaven and that he came down from heaven uh, as the son of God and claimed equality with God. So the Jews' reaction was very similar to the Jews grumbling in the wilderness before and after the manna was given to them. So you have this thing where he offers the bread, calls himself the bread of life, and the Jews murmur In the same way, in the Old Testament, when God the Father offered the Jews manna to feed them, to sustain them, the Jews murmured. It's very similar. The parallel there is supposed to be there. But even after this, Jesus again makes this proclamation for them to believe. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So um, just to unpack this word draw a little bit more, um, it's the Greek word helkyo, to draw, drag, um, to draw inward power, to lead, to impel, to inexorably pull toward. And so um, he's saying to them, Actually, you know, if God the Father was all that important to them, that he's really saying to them, look, if God the Father is is who you say he is, then I'm saying to you that if you believe in him, that he would pull you towards me. He would draw you towards me, and yet you still don't believe. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets... They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. So this text right here, this quote that Jesus says, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from me, that text comes from Isaiah 54.13. And in Isaiah 54, 13, Isaiah records, All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So Jesus is saying to them, you know, if if you were to come to me, then God the Father, the God that you say that you worship, would draw you towards me. If you are not drawn towards me, then it must mean that God the Father is not drawing you, and that should concern you. Because he goes on to say, basically, and the way that God draws you towards me is that he will instruct you about me. He will move in your life. He will tell you who I am. He will draw you towards me. And if God is not drawing you towards me, you should be concerned. You should be very, very concerned because the only way to get to me is if the Father draws you. If you know people who refuse to know, uh, to believe in Christ, then maybe one of the reasons why they do not believe is because the Father is not drawing them. That's not to say the Father will never draw them. It is to say that maybe at that point in time, the Father is not drawing them. So if you're hearing me now or if you're listening to this later, and you are a person who hears the Father draw, but you resist him, I would encourage you not to resist the Father who draws you. If you don't feel the Father drawing you towards Christ, then if I were you, I would beg God to draw you to Jesus Christ. I would would appeal to you to beg God to draw you to Jesus Christ. So two things are going on in this text. It is God the Father who brings people to Christ and that God instructs the non-believer beforehand in their heart to come to Christ. Now this is a text I think that is largely overlooked. But it seems to me to have some really important and powerful things to say about how God brings people to Jesus Christ and how people become Christians. That God is at work in the world, throughout the world, independently of you and me, to pull people to Christ so that when that day comes, they can hear about Christ, that in their hearts they are ready, they are prepared, because He will have Instructed them in some way to be receptive to the message in the person of Jesus. It's exactly what's going on here. So then we get this proclamation again in verse 47. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. Anyone may eat and not die. You don't have to die, he's saying. But because you are either resistant to the Father or you don't hear the Father, you may die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, and I will g- which I will give for the life of this world. This bread is my flesh that I will give for the life of this world. And so we see then in John 6, verses 35, largely, through 40, we see this physical evidence about the testimony that Jesus gives about himself. Then in verses 41 through 43, we see where there's just this disbelief. And there's this disbelief based almost entirely on physical reasons. And then we see again where Jesus, after that, offers more evidence, more of a proclamation about who he is. But the Jews refuse to believe. It is disbelief. It is is disbelief based on very similar reasons why people disbelieve today. Now, all of this reminded me of Another text, a biblical text, and you are familiar with this text. But I want to spend a little bit of time here because I think that it helps to drill down into what we were reading about in John chapter six. And this text is the parable of the seed and the sower from Matthew 13. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn to this because I think that. And I'm going to look at this. I'm, so this is a this is a metaphor. This parable. And, and so there are, there are certain things that I think each thing represents. And so I've not looked at it this way before quite, but I think this is accurate. So maybe you can follow along with me here. In Matthew 13, one through 9, uh, the sower is the father. The seed is the word of God. The type of soil is the heart of man. The sower is the father. The seed is the word of God. And the type of soil is the heart of man. So we read here where it says, where Matthew records, that same day Jesus went out to the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into the boat and sat in it. And all the people stood on the shore. Now, before I go into this uh This anymore, I I just want to raise this one word, and it's it's a sixty-four thousand dollar word, but it's an important word as we understand the parable of the seed and the sower. Because in the parable of the seed and the sower, one of the one of the overarching uh, things as it relates to God is God's sovereignty. Now, sovereignty, God's sovereignty means that God is in absolute control of everything because of His power because of his knowledge, because of his his omnipresence. God is in absolute control. And so if God is in absolute control, does that mean that he is responsible for absolutely everything? Does God's rulership over everything mean that he is the cause of everything? And you might say, yes. Well, does that mean that God causes evil? Does that mean that if you sin, God caused you to sin in his sovereignty? I mean, after all, he's in control. It's his plan, right? Well, this particular word, uh, uh, compatibilism, I'm sorry, compatibilism, and I was was able to say that word very well just five minutes ago, but today, right now, I can't. Compatibilism means that this, that the Christian phil- it's the Christian philosophical argument and belief that God's sovereignty and mankind's free will work compatible with each other. That we can have absolute free will on one hand, and God can be completely sovereign and absolutely in control of everything. So some people equate God's sovereignty with God's fatalism. That no matter what happens, it's all been destined to happen exactly as it happens by God's sovereignty. I do not believe in God's fatalism. I do not believe that God is the author of sin or evil. I believe that God is so powerful so knowledgeable that he can create a system where you and I, there have been about 80 billion people who have, land, who have lived on the planet in the history of the world, that every, 80, every one of those 80 billion people can do exactly as they want to do, and it will still never uh, frustrate the plan and the purpose of God. Now, how sovereign, how how powerful do you have to be that eighty billion people can do whatever they want, but your plan will still come to pass? And that's what we call compat com, compat compatibilism. Yeah, thank you, compatibilism. Anyone listening to this probably thinks I'm a complete moron, but. Anyway, uh, and so when we read about the parable of the seed and the sower, you have this image where this farmer goes out and he's sowing seed and he's in control of the seed and where it falls. And so wherever it falls, does that mean then that the soil that it falls on is not responsible, does not have free will, in a sense, to germinate that seed? It most certainly does. It still has responsibility. So if the farmer is the father, if the seed is the word of God, if the uh, ground is the heart of man, then I think that's what's going on in the parable of the seed and sorrow, that God does what he will, we do what we will, and in the end, God's purpose and plan will still uh, come to pass. And we will still be responsible for what we do and do not do in the world in which we live. So such large crowds gathered around him that he, w- he got into the boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer, a father, went out to sow his seed to speak the word. So here's the father drawing, right? As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, a path that was beaten down. So any path that you've been on, the earth is hard. As he was scattering the seed, some fell upon the path. Some seed of God falls on hardened hearts. And the birds, that is Satan and his demons, came and ate it up. Some of the seed fell on rocky places, that is, shallow hearts, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. So there are hearts that are rocky. That when God puts his seed in that heart, there are too many things in that heart that compete for the space. And when difficult times come, the roots in that rocky heart cannot grow deep. And they do not survive adversarial times, difficult situations, because they have no root, because, they're, because the soil that they need for their roots to grow deep, is isn't there because that, it, that space is taken up by other things. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Other seed fell among, uh, th- the, among, among the thorns, like destructive things that take up space in our hearts, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on the good soil, which was receptive and fertile hearts, where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times that was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So I would I would suspect that in a room this size, and I would suspect that for whoever else is listening, that there are people here that could represent every one of these scenarios. There are some people who go to church on a regular basis who are not believers. There were people I knew who came to this church on a regular basis who told me they were not believers. They liked the social aspect, the sense of community, (laughs) but they would not believe in Christ. Their hearts were hardened. And even though they heard the word of God and that word fell over their heart, that seed fell over their heart, the seed never germinated. Doesn't mean it won't ever. It just at this point in time, it did not. And then there are people maybe here, maybe listening. God the Father wants to draw you. And he, his seed falls on our hearts. But we just don't have enough fertile soil in our hearts to grow. So those roots are competing against anger, jealousy. They're competing against values that are not God's values. There just isn't enough space. There isn't enough fertility. And so when difficult times come, I mean, it's easy enough for it to live when things are convenient, but when things become really inconvenient the heat of those adversarial times just burns up the roots of our faith because the roots aren't deep enough because there's just too much other crap there that needs to be gotten rid of. Every time I till my garden in the spring, I'm taking rocks out of there because those rocks compete for space. And then there are some where the seed falls on your heart and you grow quickly enough, but there are other things competing that choke you out, jobs, priorities, relationships that are unhealthy. And so pretty soon after a while, those weeds, you know, your roots roots can grow But those weeds just choke you out. So the seed of the father is choked out because there are too many things competing for that space above ground. And you cannot survive. And then finally there is the seed that falls on fertile soil, the fertile heart. And in that fertile heart scenario... The seed grows, germinates, the roots grow deep, the plant grows up, and it produces 30, 60, even 100 times more than what it was. So for us, and again, this goes back in one sense to apologetics. The apologetic of our life is to produce fruit. 30, 60, 100 times. And that fruit manifests itself in the form of the fruit of the Spirit. That seed produces fruit that manifests itself in terms of converts and disciples of Christ. That seed manifests itself in terms of expanding the kingdom of God and the world in which we live. God's influence, his rulership over the world in which we live. And I guess I'm going to have to unpack that the rest of this next week. But I'm saying to all of us here that God calls us to Christ and he continues to call us. And that there are some people in the world whose heart is just hardened and it cannot receive the seed and it will not germinate that seed. And Satan and his enemies come, Satan and his allies come and they they eat the seed, they consume it, and that person may never come to faith. But in a related manner, those of us who are responsible to be ambassadors for Christ, to be his spokesman, we cannot, maybe we do not, because there's too much other, too many other things in our heart that compete for the space. Everyone here knows someone that grew up and knew Jesus, but left the faith because there were too many other things in their heart. Their faith could not grow deep enough, and the adversarial times in their life scorched their faith. It just wasn't deep enough. And there may be people here where You are competing with other things in your life that prevent you from being able to produce the kind of fruit that you can, that the weeds, the relationships, the unhealthy relationships are competing, the unhealthy priorities, the unhealthy values are competing and preventing us from producing the kind of fruit that we can produce, which means to be able to be an apologist to somebody who does not believe, to be able to be a person who can bring other people to faith as guided by the Holy Spirit, to be able to be people who live with integrity in the world in which we live, and we expand the kingdom, the influence of the kingdom wherever we find ourselves, in our work, in our neighborhood. That's the kind of crop that Jesus is talking about here. So where are we? Which person are we? What are we in danger of? What we, are we really capable of producing in this church and in our lives? Only you can answer that question. But one thing is clear. The Father never stops instructing. The Father never stops pulling. And if he, he has pulled you to Christ he has called all of us to produce crops. And those crops have to manifest themselves in the fruit of the Spirit, in the discipling and conversion of others, and in the expansion of his kingdom in the world in which we find ourselves. And we will all, we will all be judged on how well we do that. And the world will either flourish or diminish based on how well we respond to the pull and the guide and the tug of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Father.